But Elendil did all his father had bidden, and his ships lay off the east coast of the land. And the faithful put aboard their wives and their children, and their heirlooms, and great stores of goods. Many things there were of beauty and power, such as the Numenorians had contrived in the days of their wisdom, vessels and jewels, and scrolls of lore written in scarlet and black, and seven stones they had, the gift of the Eldar. But in the ship of Isildur was guarded the young tree, the scion of Nimloth the Fair. Hey there, guys. Welcome back to Keep on Tolkien. I'm Joel N. And I'm Danny J. And today we are coming at you with part two of our new three-part series, the High Kings series. Yeah, High Kings, just like us. They high. <laughs> anyway, this is one of my favorite characters. I love this dude. Yeah, I'd say this is one of the uh, really important High Kings. This is one of the first times we've covered a High King of the Dunedain, right? Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, we're doing two right in a row. Look at that. Right in a row. Right Knock them out. Knock them out. But yeah, we're of course, today we're talking about Elendil the Tall. Yeah, so let's start off uh, generally with just some titles for Elendil. So the name Elendil literally means admirer of stars. Which actually signifies the elf friend to the Adain. So we were talking about this earlier in, in languages, like how you'd say, uh, uh, we, we were talking about we were talking about some negative ones, but could we talk about a positive one? Yeah, it was more or less using slang or idioms, or basically. Yeah, like, like an idiom. Yeah, like like we were talking about like a like house of ill repute. Like that is just means a bad reputation house, but really that you know that that means a brothel, right? So it's like. It's a word that means another word. So it literally means admirer of stars, but uh, to an Adane person, that would mean you are an that elf. That signifies you're an elf friend. An elf friend. Because elves are admirers of the stars. Yes, exactly. They're the children of the stars, right? And we got a fun Adunaic word for elf friend. What is that, Joel? I'm going to try it. It's Nimruzir. That's how I'd say it, yeah. Nimruzir. Yeah, so that's just an Adunaic version of the same. Admirer of the stars. Elendil is also known as the Faithful. Elendil the Tall. Elendil the Fair. And uh, there's a cool Quenya word for that. What's that, Joel? It is Voramden. Hell yeah. Uh, a couple other titles for him is The Faithful, Lord of Endunie, and High King of the Dunedain in Exile. Before we get right into the Elendil business, we're going to kind of give you some context for Elendil and like where he fit in in Numenorean history and society. So let's get a little bit into Elendil's lineage. Yeah, so let's start off with uh, the Lords of Endunie. Some we should probably clarify these guys because we haven't talked too much about them. Right, it's a specific uh, group of of Numenorians, and uh, they are of the line of Elros, um, but they are uh, they are not of the line of kings. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. so and Lendil and his family they are the twenty first generation in this. They're twenty yeah, but twenty one generations removed from uh, Elros. Okay. Yes. So this distinction actually occurs, uh, it has a little bit of a kerfuffle with the uh, laws um, of, lin- of uh, what do you call it, where you pass down the uh, the throne. Lineage? Lineage laws? Yeah, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> sure. 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 Well, the lineage laws, uh, there's a little kerfuffle. So this distinction takes place during the reign of Tar Elendil, who uh, is, that sounds familiar, right? <laughs> Ancestor of our guy Elendil. Tar Elendil is the fourth king of Numenor, and he lived from 
second age 350 to second age 751 and he was 100 or excuse me 401 years old yeah, his reign lasted from 590 to 740 but ultimately uh tar elendil was a lore master and he recorded many things in books he was he's a pretty learned learned man yeah learned man and this he has the coolest nickname i've ever heard i want this as my own nickname um he was called paramite which uh, means the book handed in quenya <laughs> I would have been Always got a book in hand. Twelve-year-old me, yeah. So his oldest child was a girl whose name was Silmarion. And uh, Heath Tar Elendil, he thought that she should get the scepter and rule after him. But unfortunately, this was forbidden by Numenor- Numenorian law at the time. It was later changed. But at this juncture, it was illegal. Yeah, because it always went down to the son, not the daughter. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, Iriman, his son, who was the his second child. His third child. There's a, his there's, third? There's a daughter in between. Oh my God. Yep. So they skipped both they the skip two girls well, to that's go a to pretty big yeah, slap isn't in the that, face. Yeah. yeah, so his third child, Irman, his son, ended up being named the heir and ruled as Tar Menildur. You may recognize that from past Dunedain episodes. Yeah, that's uh, Eldarion's dad. He's the fifth king of Numenor. And he uh, he reigned from uh, Second Age 740 to 883. Yeah, but ultimately, because of this sexist bullshit, Tar Elendil created a new title for Silmarion's descendants and split up the heirlooms of the kingdom. So since she wasn't able to become ruler like he thought she deserved, he made basically a special house for her and her descendants. And her descendants, yeah. And this is where we get Elendil's line from. Yeah, the And that's why they're not technically of the line of kings of Numenor. If the laws were different. If, they were if the laws were yeah. different, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's super lame, actually, if you think about it. But yes, so uh, these uh, these heirlooms that they split up, so Aaron Ruth, the sort of thing, all that went to the king, mm-hmm. and then several other artifacts. But the ones that Silmarion's descendants, the Lords of Indunia, inherited were my favorite artifact, the Ring of Bear here, but the sword Narsil, forged by Telkar in the First Age, also the scepter of Anuminas, which is the symbol of the rule of Andunier. And also the Elendilmere of the West. Right, and that's that Star of Elendil they call that. We'll get into that. It's a very important artifact. We'll get into it later. So the Lords of Indunier were ultimately the rulers of the western side of Numenor, and uh, that part of the island was known as Andistar. And in Andistar, the ruling city became known as Andunier. Valandil, the son of Silmarin, he became the first Lord of Andunier. And he and all the Lords of Andunier were known for their close relationship with the Eldar of Tolarisea. They were gifted the Palantiri by the Eldar. Uh, these also became an heirloom of the Lords of Indunier, as we'll talk about a little bit later. And they were the highest of all the Lords of Numenor. And they were on what was called the Council of the Scepter, which was like the uh, the court of the king, essentially. And they were very highly trusted advisors of the king. The most trusted, until something happens later on. <laughs> so we've got a quick excerpt, quick excerpt here about the Lords of Indunier. Highest in honor after the house of the kings were the lords of Andunier, for they were of the line of Elros, descendant from Silmarion, daughter of Tar Elendil, the fourth king of Numenor. And these lords were loyal to the kings and revered them, and the lord of Andunier was ever among the chief counselors of the king. All right, so now we know a little bit of uh, the lineage of Elendil. Let's, uh, let's get right into him. Yeah. So origins, Elendil the Tall. Yeah, yeah. So he's born in second age thirty. Uh, excuse me, second age thirty-one nineteen, and he's the son of Amandil, who is the eighteenth Lord of Indunier. 
So we're 18 generations removed from Volandil. And like so many other characters in Tolkien's Legendarium, <laughs> his mother is unnamed. Yeah, I love how he's a super, super important character. Super important. His father and like all the other rulers yeah. are important, but uh, his mother didn't uh, deserve a name, I guess. Or perhaps it's listed elsewhere in like maybe the histories of Middle-earth, but uh, yeah. at least not in the material we saw. No. But uh, yeah, he is actually named after his forefather, Tarlendil, who we talked about earlier. Right. Two different Elendils. One was king of Numenor, one not. One not. And uh, his father, Amandil, who was actually old friends with the last king of Numenor, Arpharazon the Golden, which we'll get into a little bit later. You might recognize that name. Yeah. So that'll be a pretty impor- important point to later on in our story today. But uh, he was also known as Elendil the Tall, as we've mentioned a couple times now, because he was the tallest of the Dúnedain who escaped the downfall of Numenor. He was apparently just shy of eight feet. Yeah, yeah. I saw uh, everywhere I was seeing it said seven foot eleven, which I thought was like too accurate. So I was just right, like, like seven foot <laughs> eleven inches. That's yeah. that's empirical. Yeah, it's weird. So I was just like, I yeah. don't think Tolkien used the empirical. I don't think so either. But uh, yeah, so just shy of eight feet tall. And his name, name, as we said, means elf friend, or literally translated, admirer of stars. Yeah, so now this is a part we're going to get into the part of Elendil's life where we got to talk about uh, the faithful versus the kingsmen. Right. Yeah. There's these these two. Uh, I guess you could call them political parties, but more, yeah, more to, eh, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> it gets a little dirty, but yeah, it's just a little. It's kind of religious based, but aren't a lot of political yeah, parties, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. But uh, so ultimately, in the later part of the history of the island of Numenor, the culture takes a turn and it shifts away from the friendship with the Eldar and kind of turns towards, well, not, it turns away from the Eldar and the Valar entirely. Yeah, and this is when they really, because, well, what happens is Numenor becomes so great and so powerful that they don't want to die. There's like, this is so great, I want it to last forever. So like the culture itself starts to yearn for immortality. Yeah, especially with all their interactions with the immortal elves, they become, right. they start to become jealous. And they literally live within sight yeah, <laughs> of yeah. the Undying Lands, yeah. And uh, so here's a, a little excerpt about that. Now this yearning grew ever greater with the years, and the Numenorians began to hunger for the undying city that they saw from afar, and the desire of everlasting life, to escape from death, and the ending of delight, grew strong upon them, and ever as their power and glory grew, greater their unquiet increased. Thus it was that a shadow fell upon them, in which maybe the will of Morgoth was at work that still moved in the world, and the Numenorians began to murmur, at first in their hearts and then in open words, against the doom of men, and most of all against the ban which forbade them to sail into the West. Yeah, and these feelings within the culture grew so pervasive that uh, within Numenor that by the reign of Tar Atanamir, and his reign was from uh, 2029 to 2221 Second Age, and he's the 12th king. But he's openly speaking against the Band of the Valar in public. Yeah, so that's the significance of the Twelfth King. Tar and Atamir, yeah, he starts speaking against the Band yeah, openly. F- openly. Which is pretty, it's it's pretty big. It's big, yeah. And under his son, Tar and Kelamon, and he was the Thirteenth King, uh, this is when Numenor really starts to split into two factions, the Kingsmen and the Faithful. There were some who remained true to the old ways of Numenor, and they were called the Faithful. Or the Elendili, the elf friends. And they were secretly led by the lords of Indunie on the sly. We've got an excerpt about this here. Yet also from the beginning they bore a special love to the Eldar and reverence for the Valar. And as the shadow grew, they aided the faithful as they could. 
but for long they did not declare themselves openly, and sought rather to amend the hearts of the lords of the scepter with wiser counsels. Yeah, so they tried to like kind of use their power and influence to make it easier for the faithful rather than outright rebel against the rest of the country. Right, yeah. They tried yeah. to go about the way of just providing safer counsels. Diplomacy. Yeah. yeah. Diplomacy. Yeah, and the, the faithful were in uh, the vast minority. Yeah, the larger group were the king's men. And these guys, they shunned the Valar and everything about the Eldar. Yeah, and it got to the point where eventually the kings themselves, the kings of Numenor, start to name themselves in Adonaic rather than Quenya, which is traditional. And the first guy to do that was the 18th king, Ar Belzegar. And uh, he was from Second Age 2737 to 2835. Yeah, eventually the Elven Tongue was banned and the Eldar of Tolerosea visited only in secret. Things got pretty hostile against the Elves. The uh, the Lords of Endunia, they harbored and aided these Elves that were secretly sailing over from Tolerosea. Yeah, and that was really during yeah, and that was during the R of uh, the uh, reign of R Adunicor. But eventually, under um, R Gimilzor, the faithful are actually openly persecuted. Yeah, so this is when things take another turn for the worst. So this is pretty much the setting. <sighs> that whole bit that we just did. I don't know how long that was, but all that is to set up Lendil in the culture, in the air, the zeitgeist of Numenor. Yeah, so we've kind of talked on who the Lords of Andunia are, and we've kind of talked about the state of Numenor and how things are splitting right now and kind of turning away. And yeah, now we're going to get to basically the worst of the worst. Exactly. So to really uh, understand Elendil better, uh, next we'll have to talk about his father, Amandil, and the final king of Numenor, Arpharazan. Yeah, yeah. So by the time of Elendil, the faithful, they started to gather on the eastern port of Romana because uh, a lot of them were actually getting out of Numenor and going to live in Middle-earth. Right, yeah. Like we mentioned, things were obviously getting, uh, they were they were getting persecuted more or less. Yeah. So, and uh, none of the kingsmen were against the faithful leaving. They were just kind of like, yeah, go ahead. Good riddance. Yeah, yeah, good riddance. We'll keep Numenor. You can go back to Middle-earth. Yeah, more for us. Yeah, so at this time, some of the faithful had been leaving. And at this time, Amandil was the uh, the Lord of Indunia, and together with his sons, uh, with his son Elendil, and his is uh, in Elendil's sons, Isildur and Anarion. They uh, aided the secret exodus and generally helped the faithful in any way that they could. Now, uh, their father Amandil, when he was a child, he was actually childhood friends with the last king of Numenor, or Farazan, or I guess you just call him Farazan at the time. Uh, no, I just, that was just shorthand. No, it's okay. still our Farazan. I forget okay. what his name, his, his, his Previously. Pre, pre, pre-name was. I look, I read it earlier and I didn't put it down there. See, you're just poking holes in my outline. Fuck oh, you, fuck, fuck you, Joel. I'm sorry. Fuck you, man. That's my mistake. <laughs> but uh, ultimately, since these two were old childhood friends, this is probably why Amandiel was allowed to remain on the Council of the Scepter, despite the fact that our Farazan was very much part of the Kingsmen. You know, so these two friends are completely different factions at a point in time when the factions are about as split as they've ever been. As they possibly can be. So it wouldn't really make much sense for him to be on the council otherwise. So this actually made this story it made it made it make more sense for me. I yeah, didn't I didn't know I didn't, that they were childhood friends. Previously. I didn't know that either. I was always just like why doesn't Arpharazan just kill the Lords of Indunia? Like I don't understand why don't you just come after Amandel. But well that's why because he was he's good friends. With yeah, him. they're actually childhood friends, which is that's a pretty cool story twist. Yeah. Then yeah, Farazan married his cousin forcefully and usurped the throne of Numenor. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different story though. Yeah, that's a different story. That's a that's a different episode. <laughs> 
We call it the Cousin Fuckers episode. We're going to have to make that now. Yeah, now we're going to have to make a Cousin Fuckers episode. <laughs> the long promised it's, Cousin it, Fuckers episode. It's just him and Maglin. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was at least one other Dunedine king. It I'm might sure. have been during the Exile Kingdoms. I don't know. Anyway, well, off track. Yeah, off track. It happens. All right, so at this point in Numenor, things are pretty bad with these two factions, but things get even worse when Sauron is introduced, and uh, he is brought back to Numenor as a prisoner in Second Age 3262. And all of the Council of the Scepter, uh, except Amandil, are eventually swayed by Sauron and fall under his influence. Um, Amandil just straight up leaves the Council when Sauron uh, eventually just becomes chief advisor to the king. Yeah, he's like, I'm, I'm done. We're done here. I can't. Can't do this. Yeah, our Farazan essentially chooses Sauron over one of his oldest and dearest friends. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's got to be a... That's shitty. That's yeah. got to be pretty shitty. Like, they've lasted through everything up until now. I'd be pissed if you chose Sauron over me, Joel. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be pretty fucking pissed, too. <laughs> yeah, what would be this Sauron? One day you just come in, we come into a podcast and Sauron is standing next to me. Ooh. We've thought of some new directions for the podcast. <laughs> that don't include you. That don't include you, Joel. <laughs> Sauron here thinks that I deserve the glory. Yeah, no, Sauron's a prick. He always does that shit. Mm-hmm. So at the time of Sauron's arrival, the Numenorians did not love the Valar, but they still at least feared them. Yeah, you know, they weren't out to. They weren't about to act out against them. But Sauron moves in and says, "Hey, why not try Melkor?" Oh, it was really funny. We were talking about this earlier. Sauron, he he's like that guy that's always trying to hang out with girls when they're fighting with their boyfriends. You know, like always, <laughs> just like. Yeah. You know, oh, that's too bad he treats you that way. You deserve so much better. Oh, yeah. Why don't you just come over to my house and we'll watch Netflix and, you know. Yeah. Netflix and chill. Yeah. That's Sauron. God damn it, Sauron. The slimy one. So Sauron eventually convinces our fire zone that Melkor is a champion for men. Yeah, the, he kind of claims that the Valar are trying to keep the men down. They favor the cho- the Eldar, mm-hmm. and that Melkor was the only one that was like, no, stop, uh, you know. Men. Yeah, claiming that Melkor is the only one favoring men. Yeah. Yeah, he, Sauron also told them that through Melkor they could gain immortality, which is absolutely... Not true. Not true. Not at all. But this is when the Lords of Mandunier decide that they can't do this diplomacy shit anymore and they need to be a little bit more direct. Yeah. This is when they, this is when things get a little more direct. They're not just kinda kinda stand by. So eventually Sauron tries to convince our Farazan to cut down the white tree, and the king initially refuses, but word reaches a mandil, and he is obviously not down for this. And we've got an excerpt about this. But when Amandil heard rumor of the evil purpose of Sauron, he was grieved to the heart knowing that in the end Sauron would surely have his will. Then he spoke to Elendil and the sons of Elendil, recalling the tale of the trees of Valinor, and Isildur said no word, but went out and did a deed for which he was afterwards renowned. Said no word. Said no word, cool as a cucumber, just left the room. He knew what he had to do. He knew what he had to do. And he does uh, some really cool, badass shit. But uh, turns out, guys, next week is a fucking Isildur episode. So we're going to yeah. talk more about that t- next week. Yeah. So through much badassery, Isildur goes and recovers a fruit from the tree before it gets cut down. And uh, yeah, so next week's episode, we'll be talking more about that when we yeah, yeah, cover yeah. Isildur himself, the next High King. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Choo, 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 choo. But uh, like we mentioned, eventually 
The king does give in to Sauron, and the white tree is cut down and burned. It's actually shortly after Isildur steals, steals that yeah, fruit. It's pretty much in reaction to that, which I was kind of thinking earlier, like, maybe it was would have been better if he never did that in the first place. Maybe it wouldn't have burned the tree. <laughs> yeah, I was mm-hmm. going to, uh, maybe that was a self Sauron probably would have gotten to it eventually, though. Yeah, I'm sure. But yeah, they were basically like, what? Somebody stole the fruit? Chop that shit down and burn it now. Yeah, so if you want to hear anything more about that or some of those other events, go ahead and go back to episode 22, Kingdoms with the Dunedine, Numenor. But uh, ultimately, cutting down the tree and burning it signifies the final turn away from the original promise of Numenor. And although the people of Numenor were not happy, they grew to their greatest height and their greatest power after all this happens. And Sauron actually convinces our Pharazon that they are now mighty enough to move against the Valar. Yeah, the fucking Valar yeah. themselves. <laughs> you are now mighty enough to, to take the gods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when Amandil hears this, uh, he calls his family together to tell them his new plan, because, you know, th- this is obviously fucking ridiculous. Yeah, sidebar, sidebar, everybody come over here. Okay, so he plans to sail to Valinor himself and warn the Valar of the king's folly. And he kind of likens the, his uh, his voyage to Erendil of old, you know. Yeah, which right? is actually his ancestor. His ancestor, yeah. And uh, initially, Elendil is uh, not super on board with this. Here's a little excerpt from uh, the Alcalabeth about that. Would you betray the king? said Elendil. For you know well the charge that they make against us, that we are traitors and spies, and that until this day it has been false. If I thought that Manway needed such a messenger, said Amandil, I would betray the king. Ooh. Yeah. Stark terms there. That goes on for quite a bit, too. I had to cut that. But that, yeah, it goes on for... (laughs) Yeah, he straight up says, like, this is my... This is a higher duty than my loyalty to the king. Is his loyalty to my god, essentially. Yeah, initially, Elendil is like, you know... All this talk of us being traitors and stuff has been false up until now. Yeah, Are you sure you, you want to <laughs> go through this? Like, this is a pretty big deal. Yeah, I love that. Up until now, it's been not true. So ultimately, Elendil is not too pleased with this plan because he feels that his father is abandoning his people in their time of need. But his father still, you know, says that this is the right thing to do. And he urges Elendil to take some precautions lest shit should hit the fan. Lest shit should hit the fan. And uh, we have an excerpt about this as well. I counsel that you should prepare yourselves other ships and put aboard all such things as your hearts cannot bear to part with. And when the ships are ready, you should lie in the haven of Romana. Yeah, and he basically tells them, like, if anybody asks, these ships are to follow me because I'm going to sail off. And he says that, so he sails off in a different direction. Mandel says, I'm going to sail north or south and then turn around and go west. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so Sildor's just supposed to tell the Numenorians that all these ships are to follow Elendil. We're going, yeah, who is going east. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Elendil prepares these nine ships and fills them with the faithful and their families and the heirlooms of their house. Which brings us back to, hey, 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 the opening excerpt, right? So some of the cool uh, heirlooms of the house that they took, uh, Narsil, which Elendil carried on him as his sword, uh, Elendilmir of the West, the Scepter of Anuminas. The Ring of Bear here, the Seven Palantiri, or Seeing Stones, and the Seedling of Nimloth. So now that the Lords of Endunia are all prepared, let's get into the Downfall itself, also known as the Alcalabeth. 
Is it Al Kalibeth or Akalab? I don't know. Do I mispronounce Al-Kala? it every? Si- I always Al-Kala. think it's Al Kalibeth. Al Kala, Al Kala. I somebody, guess it's potato, potato. Fuck Somebody's me. outside. Never mind. Somebody's I, out there yelling at us. We're both a... saying it wrong. <laughs> but yeah, after Amanda leaves, some wild ass shit starts happening in Numenor. Like uh, lightning is indiscriminately killing people. <laughs> um, huge likenesses of eagles are appearing in the sky. For more on this, uh, see uh, episode twenty-two, which is our Numenor episode. Yeah, so there's a lot of ominous signs going on right now, like pretty obvious shit. <laughs> I love the lighting indiscriminately killing people. Yeah, it's, just like in the street. Just it says in the street, in the fields, and in the mountains. Like yeah, it's just everywhere. Just everywhere. So eventually, Arpharazan sails the great armament to invade the Undying Lands. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. And this ultimately triggers the wrath of Ilvatar himself. And Ilavatar brings down the coastal mountains of Valar, because they did make it there. Oh, yeah. And he traps the Numenorean fleet in what is known as the Caves of the Forgotten. He also gets real, real pissed off and just straight up sinks the island of Numenor. And uh, Elendil and his nine ships, they escape just in time. Right, yeah, because they had those nine ships off the east coast. So when the island is sunk and destroyed, they are barely saved, but they yeah. are saved because it's pretty violent. It is violent. And the, the, the violent turbulence of the ocean actually plays into a little bit of history here, which we're about to get into. So uh, they decide they're going to you know go to Middle Earth. Where else? They can't go to the Andean lands. Let's go to Middle Earth. So uh, they actually encounter massive waves and storms on the way over there, and the ships are split up. Elendil has swept north into the Gulf of Loon, and Anarion and Isildur, his sons, are swept south and eventually find the mouth of Anduin. Yeah, yeah. So we basically split up our uh, our uh, immigrant group into two different parts. So Elendil lands in Middle-earth in the year 3320, and as he lands, he swears an oath in, in the high elven tongue of Quenya. You want to go for this one, Danny? Yeah. Et Aurelo Endorena Utulian Sinome Maruvan Ar Hildiniar Ten Ambarmeta. Translation? Out of the great sea to Middle-earth I am come. In this place I will abide and my heirs until the ending of the world. Which is a pretty fucking badass thing to just declare. Yeah, and this is actually what's known as the Oath of Elendil. And uh, this is one of the telling uh, moments of why um, Elendil's a great leader. Um, and it's the humility he shows in this moment here. I mean, he's coming with all these like super cool shit and like tall, scary guys from, <laughs> from yeah. the West. Yeah, they're still pretty powerful. Yeah, and he's coming as a refugee, and he's acknowledging that. And he's, uh, he's really just kind of happy that he was spared, and his people were spared. And this is him adopting Middle-earth as his home. And pledging to protect it until the end of the world. It is pretty beautiful. Yeah, Elendil's great. Yeah, and keep in mind, uh, like we had mentioned earlier, at this point, some of the faithful had been leaving Numenor for some time before the fall. So they were actually already, some of the faithful, already there when they arrived. So after he lands, in Eriador, Elendil meets High King Gilgalad of the Noldorian Elves. And Gilgalad acknowledges the friendship of the Numenorians of old. Yeah, he welcomes Elendil and his company, and they form a strong alliance with the elves of Eriador. And uh, basically through the, ga- the grace of Gilgalad, he's allowed to establish his kingdom there. Right, because uh, the first kingdom that we're about to talk about, Arnor, mm-hmm. in the north, that's very close to, to his kingdom. Yeah, yeah. In uh, Lindon, right? Yeah. And Gilgalad, uh, you know, he's got all these Numenorians already living underneath him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's like, yeah, I mean, these are your people. Go lead them. You know, might as well. Might as well. So Elendil establishes the North Kingdom of Arnor in Second Age thirty three twenty. 
Yeah, so some of those uh, Numenorians that had come to Middle-earth previously, they're now part of these, uh, the, the Northern Kingdom. And uh, these Dúnedain there, they began to mingle with some of the middlemen, some of the Edain of Middle-earth. of Middle Earth. Yeah, so the bloodline's being diluted a little bit. Yeah, but, so um, this is the main population of the Northern Kingdom, where yeah. some of these uh, mixed folk. Yeah, and still Dúnedain blood, but yeah. Still Dúnedain blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elendil founded the city of Anuminas in that same year, 3320, and ruled from there. There were also several other uh, pop, uh, famous, popular, <laughs> so famous cities in uh, the Northern Kingdom. Who? Uh, well, what are some of those, Joel? They are Fornost, Tharbad, Londadair, and Tirngorthad. And also, once Elendil hooked up with his sons, and uh, you know, they were like, "Yeah, we found a place down here too. Let's we're gonna set up a kingdom yeah, down once there." Once they finally met up again, yeah, once they finally base. met up again, um, yeah, they actually split up the uh, Palantiri to help them communicate across their kingdoms, which is perfect. Perfection. So Elendil takes three. And he puts them in three different locations, obviously. Uh, the Tower of Elostrion. Elostrion, yeah, I think that's how you say it. The Tower of Elostrion. And this uh, is uh, in that um, the hills known as uh, Emin Barad, which we uh, we talked about. I don't think we talked about this in the episode, but when we were going over the episode, the Gilgalad episode, mm-hmm. um, we talked about how those towers were actually built by Gilgalad for Lindil, his friend. Yeah, so we're talking about uh, basically the towers and some of the settlements built along the west coast and Lindon, yeah, near the uh, near the havens, and that stone actually only gazed west over the sea toward the master stone, which was in the Tower of Avalone in Tolerasea. There was also the Anumina stone, which sat in the city of Elendil, which is the capital of Arnor, and of course the Amonsul stone, which was set in the, the Watchtower of Amonsul, which was uh, later the ruined version of it, is called Weathertop. Mm-hmm. And you might notice that from Lord of the Rings where Frodo gets stabbed there. Stab, stab. Stab, stab, stab. Yeah, there used to be a seeing stone there, which is pretty cool. And then each of uh, Isildur and Anarion, they each get two. And uh, they put them uh, throughout the southern kingdom. Where do they put them, Joel? So his sons, Isildur and Anarion, they take their four stones and they put them in uh, Anor, in Minas Anor. So there's an Anor stone. They put one in Osgiliath, the capital. They put one in Orthanc, which is pretty cool, up in Isengard. And then there's also the Minas Ithil stone, which uh, later becomes... Key. Very key, (laughs) yes. Uh, So yeah, so now that they've got their kingdoms established, let's get into a little bit of their history. Yeah, well, all this setting up kingdoms and prospering and having a good time and being thankful that you're alive. While all that's happening, Sauron, uh, he survived the downfall of Numenor, and he made his way back to Mordor. Yeah, Sauron was not idle, and they don't know that he's still alive. They, They consider him gone with Numenor. Yeah. Until, uh, uh, so he, yeah, he moves back to Mordor and plots his revenge, and they don't know he's there until this moment, which this excerpt talks about. Now Sauron prepared war against the Eldar and the men of Westerness, and the fires of the mountain were awakened again. Wherefore, seeing the smoke of Orodruin from afar, and perceiving that Sauron had returned, the Numenorians named that mountain anew, Amon Amarth, which is Mount Doom. And Sauron gathered to him great strength of his servants out of the east and the south, and among them were not a few of the high race of Numenor. So let me just, I got to interject a sidebar here. Oh, yeah. So I see a lot of memes on the internet making fun of Tolkien for naming things like Mount Doom. 
They're like, he has all these crazy names for everything except for Mount Doom. Well, here's the thing, guys. Listen up. <laughs> Mount Doom is the is the Westron translation of Amun Arm Amarth, which is a much cooler name, mm-hmm. which means Mount Doom. And then there's also the Elvish the original Elvish name Orodrin, which means Fire Mountain, right? Orodrin. So like, yeah, he named it three different things. We just know it by Mount Doom because it's a translation of yeah. Yeah. Tolkien was really creative. Yeah. He's he's a creative guy. So fuck all you guys. So, in the year 3428 of the Second Age, Sauron launches a surprise attack against the Numenorean kingdoms. This is the first time they've seen him. Yeah, he just, he hoped to destroy the kingdoms before their, fo- their power was fully established. He captured Minas Ithil and drove out a Sildor, who fled by ship to Arnor. But then little bro, little bro Anarion, was able to hold the enemy back at Osgiliath and defend that city from them. Yeah, I can't imagine that's an easy city to defend, but he no, did it. and he's the little brother. So uh, two years later, in the year 3430, in response to Sauron's sudden resurgence, High King Elendil and High King Gilgalad form an alliance. These high kings agreed to extend their alliance to King Durin the Fourth of the Longbeards, King Orifer of the Greenwood Elves, and King Amdir of the Lorien Elves. And together the kings decide to raise a great host in a balls-out attempt to vanquish Sauron once and for all, known as the Last Alliance. <laughs> and for more about that, see Joel's uh, magnum opus episode uh, oh, thank you. 41, The Last Alliance of Elves and Men. It's, I listen to that episode just for funsies. I love it. I'm pretty proud of that one. But uh, for now, so we're going to go over The Last Alliance, but we're going to try to keep it kind of uh, tied to Elendil. Yeah. So, the last alliance. Let's start off with a quick excerpt about this. Now Elendil and Gilgalad took counsel together, for they perceived that Sauron would grow too strong and would overcome all his enemies one by one if they did not unite against him. Therefore they made that league which is called the Last Alliance, and they marched east into Middle-earth, gathering a great host of elves and men. It is said that the host that was assembled was fairer and more splendid in arms than any that has been seen in Middle-earth, and none greater has been mustered since the host of the Valar went against Thangorodrim. Badass. Badass. So yeah, this is some cool shit. Uh, so like we've mentioned in previous episodes, because Elendil and Gilgalad took the initiative here to start first, they had the luxury of time to prepare for the battle. Yeah. Most of the time, Sauron is the aggressor. Most of the time, Sauron, yeah. Most of the time, Sauron is the one that gets the upper hand. Yeah. Uh, so both the kings began by spending two years gathering their own forces. Gilgalad gathered the forces of elves of Eriador and Lindon, and Elendil gathered the forces of Arnor and the remnants of Isildur's forces from Gondor. And in Second Age 3431, the forces of Gilgalad and Elendil meet at the Tower of Amunsul and march to Rivendell. In Rivendell, the alliance is joined by the forces of Lord Elrond of Rivendell, and Elrond has the forces of those elves there and he also takes his place as Gilgalad's second in command for the coming campaign. Yeah, I remember he delays his marriage because of it. Right. It yeah. was a yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah. So the alliance spent a further three years in Rivendell while they were there. They were just more or less forging armor and weapons, training and strategizing. This is when Rivendell gets its uh its nickname the Great Forge. And in Second Age 3434, the Alliance left Rivendell and traveled eastward across the Misty Mountains. So in the Vale of Anduin, on the other side, the Alliance kind of regroups and is joined by the Sylvan forces of Amdir of Lothlorien and Orifer of Greenwood the Great. Amdir gathered the forces of the Sylvan Galadrim in Lothlorien. Orifer gathered the forces of Sylvan Elves of Greenwood the Great. However, something that needs to be noted is that uh, neither Amdir nor Orifer's, Orifer's 
hosts would take Gilgalad, High King Gilgalad, as their leader. Yeah, old beef. There's some old beef there between the Sylvan Elves and the High Elves. But after regrouping, the alliance headed south along the east bank of the Anduin and rendezvoused with the, f- rendezvoused with the forces of Durin the Fourth of Khazad-dûm, and of course Anarion, who's down there holding down the motherfucking fort. Yeah, he's been holding shit down this whole time. He's been yeah, basically holding down the fort while everyone takes the time gathering their forces. Hero of Gondor, Anarion. I think he's pretty underrated. I do too. Yeah, so Anarion had gathered the remaining forces of Gondor, who were more or less holding the fort down, and uh, Durin the Fourth gathered the forces of the dwarves of Khazad-dûm. It said that few dwarves fought on either side, but there were dwarves on both sides during this battle. Now fully gathered, the complete alliance marches south to meet Sauron's defenses at Mordor. And on the southward journey, the Alliance reaches a recently devastated region that becomes known as the Brownlands. Yeah, at some point between SA 3431 and 3434, Sauron had sent his army north and slaughtered the Entwives and destroyed the land in an attempt to hinder or just straight up intimidate the Alliance. Which uh, I wouldn't say it hindered them much, but I would find that very intimidating. Yes. And in that famous year, 3434, the Alliance meets Sauron's forces for the first time and begins the most decisive battle of the war, the Battle of Dagorlad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sauron's host was uh, comprised of many different forces. Speed around, Joel, Easterlings, Southrons, Black Numenorians. Dwarves, Orcs and Goblins, Trolls, and other unnamed beasts. Yeah, the Battle of Dagorlad was a shit show in the beginning because there was some contention be- between the hosts of the Eldar, which we talked about. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they refused the, the command of High, uh, High King Gilgalad. Yeah, those Sylvan Elves, they wouldn't follow the, the commands. Mm-hmm. So this almost proved disastrous. It actually killed off a lot of those Elves. Most of them died, yeah. Most of them died. Uh, and, but eventually, Elendil and Gilgalad regained control of the situation and they went together into battle and they did gain the upper hand. Yeah. It took months and there were heavy losses, but they did, like Joel said, gain the upper hand, and they breached the Black Gates themselves. Which I can imagine must have been a pretty fucking crazy scene, because oh, yeah. those are the Black Gates in my mind are always just like this impenetrable force. Like, oh, yeah. I, I'd love to see that scene. Oh, yeah. I wonder how they did it. The famed weapon of Gilgalad at this time was a spear named Iglos, which meant snow point or snowthorn. It was a pretty cool, pretty badass weapon. And the famed weapon of Elendil... That was his sword, Narsil. And that, of course, means red and white flame in Quenya, and it was made by Telkar of Norgod in the First Age. Badass. Super badass. Yeah, yeah. It was passed down to the Dunedain, and it became one of the heirs of the uh, Lords of Indunia, or the Kings of Numenor, and then later the Lords of Indunia. Mm-hmm. For more on Narsil, see uh, previous episode 46, Artifact Swords. We get into a little bit in there. God, I feel like we're just constantly referencing. We've done so many episodes now. This is our 50th. We're just constantly referencing previous episodes. Yeah, guys, let's take a moment out to, to realize that this is our 50th episode. Yay! Woo! Number 50. We already planned. Uh, we talked about planning our 100th episode, guys. So we're. Uh, yeah. we're <laughs> Believe me, we are not done. We're not going anywhere. There's a lot left. Ah, yes. So, back to it. The sword Narsil. We have a quick excerpt about this. The host of Yilgalad and Elendil had the victory, for the might of the elves was still great in those days, and the Numenorians were strong and tall, and terrible in their wrath. Against Iglos the spear of Gilgalad none could stand, and the sword of Elendil filled the orcs and men with fear, for it shone with the light of the sun and the moon, and it was named Narsil. Hell yeah, I just imagine that that shining sword just 
up and down, just mm-hmm. swinging. And it's times like these when I wish we live stream because, like, as Joel's reading, because I'm so psyched about these fucking excerpts. <laughs> sometimes, as Joel's reading them, I'm just literally air guitaring over here, like. <laughs> After breaching the Black Gates, the Alliance successfully drove Sauron's forces back and uh, to the fortress of Baradur. Yeah, so the remaining forces of Gilgalad, Elendil, Thranduil, and because Thranduil's leading the. Sylvan Elves now. Yep. And Durin the Fourth, they all camped out on the plains of Gorgoroth, which must have been kind of shitty. And they prepared. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good place. It's not, a, it's not like a campground, man. It's not a family campground. <laughs> no. Like, the plains of Gorgoroth are pretty shitty. Like, it's all oily water and Does black it mean, like, pl- terror plains or something like Something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, and that's where they're camping while they prepare for the siege of Barad-dur. <laughs> Come camp at Gorgoroth National Park. <laughs> We've got <laughs> sea wild orcs, sea oily streams, sea mountains of fire, see the world's darkest stones, <laughs> see utter desolation, Gorgoroth State Park. Visit now, www.gorgorothstatepark.com. Gorgorothstatepark.com. All right, a little bit off topic there. I just really like the idea of camping there. I mean, I hate the idea of camping there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the Siege of Barad-dûr, it actually starts in the year 3434, you know, where so many of these things are happening, and it continues for seven more years. Seven years. And uh, though Sauron was uh, confined within his tower, he was not without power during the siege. Yeah, the Alliance endured seemingly endless numbers of arrows, rocks, and flaming missiles, as well as regular counterattacks from Sauron's orcs. Yeah, so the Alliance took many casualties in these years. In the year 3440, Elendil's second son, King Anarion of Gondor, was actually killed when his helmet was crushed by a stone that was hurled from Barad-dûr. Yeah, y'all. Pour one out, put one up for Anarion, our boy. That's pretty metal. Yeah. One year later, in 3441, the siege became so intense that Sauron himself emerged and joined a counterattack that broke the Alliance's lines. Yeah, if that's a testament to how strong Sauron's power is. They've been doing the siege for like seven years now. Seven years now. And uh, all it took was Sauron and they just busted through the alliance. Yeah. Yeah, Sauron gained ground and actually pushed the alliance back all the way to the slopes of Mount Doom, which is a pretty good ways. And we've we've got an uh, excerpt about this here. But at the last, the siege was so straight that Sauron himself came forth, and he wrestled with Gilgalad and Elendil, and they were both slain, and the sword of Elendil broke under him as he fell. But yeah, like you, like we heard in that excerpt, they fought in single combat on the slopes of Mount Doom. King, it's Sauron, Gilgalad, and Elendil. Yeah, and if you want to see a pretty badass interpretation of this, look no further than the prologue of the Lord Lord of the the Rings. Rings Granted, we don't get to see the battle all that much. The battle with Elendil and Isildur and Gilgalad. It ends pretty quickly. Uh, Yeah, but it ends pretty quickly. But it's still pretty cool just like... For atmosphere. For atmosphere. You're on the slopes of Mount Doom and it's like this final desperate battle. Mm -hmm. This is the end of the Alliance. Yeah, dude. I'd imagine too, like this scene, this scene could have been so cool because it was like you had Gilgalad, Elendil, and Sauron going at it in the mm-hmm. middle. And then on the outskirts, you had Isildur, I imagine, keeping the orcs off of them. Right. And then Elrond and fucking Kirdan. Uh, Kirdan's there. Keeping the orcs off of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, you just have this huge circle, I imagine. It's like the, the bloodiest, most brutal right. fucking battle. I imagine this is like one of the most ultimate boss fights. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, obviously, Fingolfin versus Melkor, I mean, that's fucking great. But, I mean, there's Mm -hmm. been so much 
that we've been talking about in this episode that led up to this fight. It would just be so cool to see that. Yeah. Dude, Elendil is eight feet tall, too. Sauron is, what, nine feet tall? And there's just so many main characters. Elendil, Isildur, Gilgalad, Círdan, Elrond, like, the ghost so of, many people here. The ghost of Anarion. Technically, Thranduil's there, too. Yeah, Thranduil's <laughs> there somewhere, too. Like Anyway, so this this battle with Sauron. Sauron is obviously much more powerful than Gilgalad or Elendil or Elrond or Círdan or Isildur or anybody. Or, yeah, but any number of them combined mm. gets the trick done. <laughs> there you go, yeah. So ultimately, Gilgalad is killed first when Sauron, Sauron scorches his fucking face off with his hand, which we've already talked about how fucking gnarly and metal that is. And uh, nearby, Elrond, Círdan, and Isildur are just watching helplessly. So we've got to throw out a excerpt about this scene. Yeah, this is what Elrond said about it at the Council of Elrond. I beheld the last combat on the slopes of Orodruin. It was Gilgalad, elven king, and Elendil of Westerness who overthrew Sauron, though they themselves perished in the deed where Gilgalad died, and Elendil fell, and Narsil broke beneath him. But Sauron himself was overthrown, and Isildur cut the ring from his hand with the hilt shard of his father's sword and took it for his own. Yeah, so ultimately this fight, with this fight, so ends the last of the High Kings of the Noldor. Never again in Middle-earth was there a High King of the Noldor. Yeah, so that was, uh, that was a very sad ending. But we're talking today about the High Kings of the Dúnedain. Yeah, and it's also the death of the first High King of the Dúnedain in Middle-earth. The, the High Kingship is passed down to Isildur. Yeah, there's also the death of the greatest warrior of the Dúnedain. Yeah, period. Period. Eight foot tall, Elendil the Tall. A motherfucker. A true motherfucker. Toe to toe with Sauron. Yeah. So I imagine Narsil, so he's eight feet tall. So I imagine Narsil is a really long sword. It would have to because I know that your sword is supposed to be uh, basically proportional to your height. Yeah. And Aragorn is six foot four. So Aragorn wielding that sword must have been like fucking William Wallace with the Claymore. <laughs> Like, you know, it must have been yeah. fucking terrified. Well, technically they did reforge it. In but they didn't make it shorter. Are you I kidding mean, me? Maybe they, how maybe pissed they took out one of those shards. <laughs> and just how pissed <laughs> off would you be? How pissed off would you be as Aragorn? They, like, give it back to you and it's shorter. Yo, dude. I oh, mean, this here's is, this, the shard we didn't use. <laughs> like, this is really cool, but, I mean, this, short, this sword's a lot shorter, you know? Like, I'm not saying I'm, like, compensating for anything or anything like that, but, like, this is a shorter sword than I gave you, <laughs> you know? Like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> what the fuck happened? There's a less sword here than when I gave it to you. <laughs> yeah, because it says in the book it broke in two pieces. So it's not like, like oh, in the movie it like shatters. Yeah, it was like shards. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. But yes, ultimately. So that, in that fight with Sauron, is the end of High King Elendil. Yep. And it's also the end of the Last Alliance. And the end of the fucking Second, Second Age. Age. Yeah, it's yeah. the end of a lot. The of end of a lot of things. People and things, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, the the tomb of Elendil. This is a cool story that I knew nothing about. I hadn't known this either. So this is pretty fun. Check this out, guys. So Elendil was buried by a sealer at a place called Island Air. Which, is that how you'd say that? I think so. Island Air. Um, it's considered to be the halfway point between the two kingdoms of the Dúnedain. Okay, so between the north and the south. Yeah, so it's in the White Mountains somewhere. Okay, so this was called Aman Anwar, the Hill of Awe. And this place was said to be almost completely silent. 
Yeah, and the kings, uh, in the the kings of Num- or excuse me, the kings of Gondor, and later the stewards of Gondor, they made pilgrimages to this secret, uh, to this sacred place that they totally kept a secret. Yeah, super secret. The kings went there when they were seeking wisdom. They also took the heirs there when they were of age. Yeah, this is really cool. They would take like you know, you take your son before you know you're you, you're gonna pass the crown to him. You take him up there and you kind of give him a a little crash course and um. <laughs> In being the king, really. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they would tell them also the story of... Because they didn't know anything about this place. So they'd tell them the story of the place. You know, Elendil's buried here. Mm-hmm. The um, story of Elendil. Yeah. I imagine this is kind of like National Treasure 2. The, <laughs> you know, the presidential book of secrets or whatever. <laughs> yeah, this all is, the secret shit the president's passed yeah, on. Yeah. This is when they get it up here at the uh, <laughs> at Amun Anwar here. So during the uh, decline of the kingdom of Gondor, uh, Kalinardon, was, uh, which is the province that this is located in, was depopulated for a huge number of reasons, which we discussed at length in uh, the Kingdoms of the Dunedain Part 3 of the Gondor episode. Yeah, so that'll be episode 24. So the oath of uh, Kirion and Eorl the Young actually took place on this spot in the year 2510 of the Third Age. But at this juncture, it was uh, it was uh, since you know he gave Kalinardon to to Rohan. It was no longer part of Gondor. It was uh, gifted to the Eothade and became the king- kingdom of Rohan. Oh, so Kirion, you know, who he was the steward of Gondor. He's like, well, this isn't Gondor anymore. So Kirion, uh, the steward of Gondor, he took Elendil's remains and put them in the Hallows in Minas Tirith, and there they remain. So Elendil's ultimate resting place was Minas Tirith. Yeah, after a while, it spent a, a a little bit of time at a cool place. Mm-hmm. It was I like that idea that the kings go there when they're seeking wisdom. It kind of reminds me of the mental dharma. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and they said that the the way the forest grew around the uh, the mountain, Isildur made this secret road up there. Oh, cool! And the way that the trees, uh, you couldn't like see the mountain until you like got through the trees. Oh, and so then, it was like a secret mountain. It was like a secret mountain essentially. <laughs> secret mountain people. And um, the trees, the way they were, it would muffle all the noise. So like it was completely. Oh silent oh, so a really it. cool acoustic shadow yeah exactly that's really fun yeah so the tomb of elendil is a pretty cool place yeah even though he's not there anymore so let's let's talk a little bit about the character of elendil and uh i say he's the best of the best and here's why one word joel okay humility <laughs> so uh some of the humility the reasons why he's a, a humble guy and that's uh you know he was always one of the the faithful he was proud to be dunedine but at no, um, you know, he thought they were mighty among the children of Ilavatar, but at never any point did he think they were greater or knew more than the Eldar of the Valar. Yeah, he did have a lot of respect. He also came to Middle-earth as a refugee and adopted it as his new home. He eventually gave the lives of many of his people and his own life to protect this new land from evil. Yeah, just like so many other immigrants throughout history. Right. Immigration is good. Me and Danny were actually <laughs> just talking before this episode. We were, uh, we were reading a story in our article about some uh, veterans who are spending their Veterans Day in uh, Mexico because they were deported. Yeah, super which fun. Which is pretty fucked up. It's always the like the, the newest members of the country that are like, I mean, they're not even there for a hundred years yet. Mm-hmm. And like a good portion of their population and their king die. They give their lives to protect their new country that they adopted. You're talking about Elendil now, yeah. yeah Elendil and so many other people throughout history is the okay. point I'm trying to make. Like, you know, Im- it's the immigrant story is what I'm saying. But also let's talk about Aragorn. But you didn't think we'd talk about him in this episode. Uh, Aragorn being Elendil Part 2, essentially. 
Yeah, so it might be kind of strange. We're talking about Aragorn during the Elendil episode, but Aragorn kind of completes the story of Elendil. Right. And it's it's it goes without saying that Aragorn is one of the greatest characters in The Lord of the Rings. Definitely. And virtually all the characteristics that we love about Aragorn were traits that were displayed by his ancestor, Elendil, 39 generations removed. Yeah, his ability to lead in times of war, strife, or peace. Yeah, the prowess in battle, just the sheer strength of the motherfucker. And his uh, obligation to protect the weak. Yeah, and uh, we see this as evident at the Council of Elrond. Aragorn talks about how the job of protecting the Northern Kingdom, the Old North Kingdom, is a thankless job done by the Dunedain of the North. Got a quick excerpt about that there, because why not? Because why not? Yet we would not have it otherwise. If simple folk are free from care and fear, simple they will be, and we must be secret to keep them so. That has been the task of my kindred while the years have lengthened and the grass has grown. Yeah, really, that's been their task since Elendil made it so. Yeah, when he took that oath. Yeah. To protect Middle-earth to whatever end, till the end of the world. And that's about everything we've got for you today on High King Elendil. I'd say one of the most important High Kings, especially when you're talking about High Kings of the Dunedain. Yeah, yeah. I love Elendil. He's a great character. And then, like, him reflected in Aragorn is also great. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, because I love Aragorn, too. It is a really cool concept. But uh, that's about all we've got for you today, guys. Uh, this has been KOT Podcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, follow us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at KOT Podcast. If you want to follow me, um, uh, I'm at Danny J. That's J-A-Y-K-O-T. Um, follow us on Facebook. Yeah, go ahead. www.facebook.com forward slash official keep on Tolkien. Also, feel free to join the KOT Talk group that we've got there. Uh, it's just a lot of us, the listeners and such, asking questions and discussing things and sharing memes and things. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it's fun. Also, follow us on Instagram at, at Keep on Tolkien Podcast. Subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. And also, give us a, a little bit of a rate and review um, on uh, whatever site you like. Yeah, rate. Maybe send us a comment. We'd love to hear your feedback. Yeah. And by subscribing uh, on SoundCloud, SoundCloud or iTunes, you can uh, keep up to date on new episodes and, uh, yeah, automatic downloads. Very cool. We also want to throw out a big thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon. If you're interested in checking out the Patreon, go to www.patreon.com forward slash KOT podcast. Uh, subscribe and help support us. Yeah, think of it as like a like a little tip jar. If you like the show, if you think we deserve a little bit, you know, you want to say thank you. Throw in a tip jar, and also you can uh, you can also cancel your subscription anytime. So like if you know things get too bad or financially, don't you don't have to yeah, commit. No <laughs> worries. Yeah, we're we're humans. We run through these same problems. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, ultimately, uh, KOT podcast is a hundred percent do it yourself. It's a DIY podcast, so it's all still coming out of pocket. So any donations really do help us a lot. Just bring you know the same quality of content to you guys that you expect yeah and uh subscribing can also unlock some super cool exclusive content which is almost not always is excuse me always not safe for work um and yeah we're, we're we've been talking about revamping our patreon a little bit and uh we're gonna work on some new fun materials for you um it's more like uh we figure you guys um you like us at least that's what you tell us it seems that it seems i mean if you're listening to episode 50 there must be something you enjoy something keeping you here and uh, <laughs> so we decided uh, to do some things where you can just kind of get to know us a little bit more. We talk about our favorite things like yeah. our you know, movies and books and stuff like that, just to get to know us a little bit more yeah, if you're yeah. interested in that. But ultimately, that's what we've got for you today, guys. Yeah, yeah. I am Danny J. And I am Joel N. And as always, guys, keep, keep on, on talking.
Ah, Ray and Tuluva.